Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 is our text for this morning. I don't have an introduction for you because I want to get right into the text. And so if you have the ability, let me encourage you to stand this morning as we read God's word. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21, pens the following words. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. For Christ. You may be seated. Four points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you like I did last week, all on the front end. Number one is this to be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit simply means to be controlled or to yield to the Spirit. Number two, spirit-filled Christians are marked by expressive adoration. Spirit-filled Christians are marked by expressive adoration. Paul tells us what it means to be controlled by the Spirit, and then he gives us three evidences of what a spirit-controlled believer looks like. The first of those is that they're marked by expressive adoration. Number three on your outline, spirit-filled Christians are marked by overflowing thankfulness. And then lastly and finally, spirit-filled Christians are marked by mutual submission. Mutual submission. Let me draw your attention to point number one on your outline. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. Let me draw your attention to verse 18. Look at your Bibles. Paul says this, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's what Paul's doing here as he opens verse 18. He's setting up a contrast here in verse 18 between a life that is controlled or dominated by a substance and a life that is controlled or dominated by Christ. You see, the former is destructive, the latter is constructive. In light of Paul's preceding contrast, think back to light and darkness. Think back to wisdom versus foolishness. Paul's point here is that drunkenness is a mark of darkness and foolishness that used to characterize our old life. It's part of the old man. But being filled with the Spirit is part of the new man. It's the source of the believer being able to walk in light and in wisdom. While Paul doesn't address drunkenness as the theme of the text for this morning, he does address drunkenness clearly and decisively. It's not the main emphasis of the text, but let me say a few things regarding this subject matter, and that's the wonderful thing about expositional or expository preaching is when a subject occurs in the text, a subject should occur in the preaching. So here we go. Paul says, do not be uncontrolled. You can think of it that way. Do not be uncontrolled on wine. Why would Paul contrast being filled with the Spirit with being drunk on wine? We have to remember, one, that the Ephesians were saved out of a gross lifestyle fraught with idol worship that was oftentimes accompanied by intoxication. 
That's the lifestyle that they came out of. That's what they were saved out of, number one. And then secondly, because that was the lifestyle they would have been saved out of or saved from, there was the continual constant tug to revert back to that old sinful man, to revert back to that old sinful, dark and unwise lifestyle in which they once lived. And for that reason, Paul says, Ephesians, and thus us this morning, do not get drunk on wine. But Paul uses this exhortation to paint a very specific picture in their and subsequently in our minds. You see, when someone is drunk or has consumed excessive amounts of alcohol, we refer to that person as being under the influence. And Paul's going to st- take that same picture and he's going to paint it for being filled with the Spirit. Don't be under the influence of wine. Don't be under the influence of strong drink. Instead, be under the influence of the Spirit. That's what Paul is saying here. You see, when a person is under the influence of alcohol, their ability to think and to reason and to behave becomes inhibited. You see, alcohol takes you to a place that is out of control, number one, and outside of reality, number two. It makes you feel as though you can tackle the world, but it leads you down the path of a life of destruction. That word debauchery there, it literally means this, reckless living. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, or it leads to reckless living. Interpretation, unwise living as compared to wise living. It leads to darkness as compared to a life in the light. We've been called to walk as children of the light. Reckless living or indulgence in every manner of sin. I think it's important here that we note that it's the abuse of wine. It's the abuse of alcohol that's prohibited here, not the use. And the reason I state that is because I don't want to skirt the edge of being a legalist. Okay? When it comes to the consumption of alcohol, at the end of the day, number one, if you're not 21, off limits. You can't do it and not sin. It's impossible. Because you'll be violating the laws of the land. You got that, young people? You're not 21 years old. It's not even a question. Now, for those of you that would fall within the legal age range, you need to have a conscience that is informed by the Word of God, that is soft and sensitive to the Word of God, and you need to let your conscience, if it is soft and submissive to the Word of God, drive you here as to whether you do partake or don't partake. Now, if you do partake, the express prohibition is do not get drunk. Now, let me say this. It's it's not as if when you're drinking alcohol, you know three more sips and then I'm there. It sneaks up on you. And so you've got to be very careful. We are to to live with restraint, to live with self-control. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, by the way. So if you're talking about being filled with the Spirit, we want to be believers who are marked by a high level of self-control. Self-control doesn't mean how far can I get to the line without stepping over. If that's the question you're asking, it's the wrong question on the front end. And if it's the question you're asking, I can almost guarantee you that you'll step over the line every single time. It's the abuse of wine that is forbidden, not the use But we should be self-controlled. And for some of us, if it violates your conscience, that means the answer is no, nada. But we would do well to heed wise Solomon's words. Solomon said this in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. 
He said, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You see, drunkenness mocks a person by making him or her think that he's better off instead of worse off, smarter instead of more foolish, happier instead of simply being more dazed. It's a favorite tool of Satan, and for that very reason, it destroys and deceives. It's easier to be led astray than we oftentimes think. You think, particularly young people, let me have your attention for a second, and this isn't confined to a particular age demographic, but we oftentimes think, I won't be mastered by that. I can handle that. I'm strong enough. He may not be, she may not be, but I can handle it. You're already deceived, if that's the case. We know what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, right? Can you think? Let your mind catalog back there for a minute. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do you know what Romans 12, 3 says? You see, oftentimes we have these favorite verses, and I do too. So this is not tossing the piano out. I'm, I'm amongst you. But we don't know what comes right before those favorite passages or right after those favorite passages sometimes. Romans 12.3 says, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, but consider yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of grace that God has given you. If we think, I can handle, that person can't and that person can't, but I can handle this, you've, you've already failed because you're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think instead of thinking of yourself with sober judgment judgment. We can be led astray much easier than we think, and not just in in the arena of alcohol, in every area of sin. And so the question we ought to be asking isn't how close to the line can I get without stepping over. We've already failed if that's the question that we're asking. That's the wrong leading question. The leading question is how might I in every area of my life in what I do, in what I think, in what I consume, and where I go, and what I laugh at, and what I allow my eyes to see, and all my relationships, and we could keep on and keep on going, will this glorify Christ? That's a good question to be asking. And then with a conscience that's soft and tender, informed by the Word of God, move forward. You see, many people turn to alcohol for the experience that it provides. But Paul says that being filled with the Spirit is to be the experience, so to speak, of the believer. You see, we need to remember that Satan is a master counterfeiter, just like he counterfeits love in the forms of sexual immorality and impurity. Remember, we talked about that several weeks back. That's counterfeit love. It's the antithesis of love. But it's what Satan says, here, do this. Try this. Walk down this road. It feels good. It looks good. You're going to want this. And like the carrot in front of the horse, he just dangles it in front of us. But Satan is a master counterfeiter. Just like he counterfeits love in forms of sexual immorality and impurity, so he counterfeits the lasting joy unspeakable full of glory that believers ought to seek and ought to want with the temporary escape that drunkenness brings. You see, alcohol is not the most effective remedy for the cares and concerns of this world. Trying to drink problems away is like trying to dig a hole in the sand right next to the tidal line. You see, the waves with but a single lap or two will refill that hole with sand. In other words, it's a futile endeavor. Trying to drink your problems away is a futile endeavor. All it does is rearrange a mess. You see, we were made with hearts and minds that were meant to be exhilarated. Think about that for a minute. We were made with hearts and minds that were meant, designed, 
fashioned, purposed to be exhilarated and exceedingly so. I mean, the scriptures speak of singing for joy, shouting for joy, the fullness of joy, great tidings of great joy, the joy of the Lord, joy unspeakable and full of glory. I mean, God made our hearts to be enraptured and enthralled with him. With him. To know the creator God and to be in union with, with him and saving fellowship with him, that's what makes the heart sing. And when we get right back down here to verse 19, we're going to talk about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to God. It's, it's when we understand who God is and what he has done for us, it makes the heart sing. That is to be, for the believer, our source of exhilaration and great joy. Instead of going, instead of going somewhere else to try to find that. Don't be duped by counterfeit joy and happiness. You see, alcohol may make you happy for the moment, but it will leave you empty-handed and empty-hearted at the end of the day. If you and I forsake the real road of joy for the counterfeit road of joy, then you and I will be like the man who worked tirelessly to dig a cistern, only to find out in the end that he had dug a broken cistern that can hold no water. Alcohol is never a cure for the cares of life, but it has few equals in its ability to multiply them. Let me give you just a helpful tool. It's been helpful to me over the years, I mean, really since the, the first days that I became a Christian. The man who discipled me uh, gave me a tool called the Corinthian grid. And I want to share it with you. Some of you college students are probably very familiar with the Corinthian grid. But for those of you that aren't, I want to share it with you this morning. And this is, this is a grid of questions that you can use to, to help discern, should I or should I not fill in the blank? The Bible is very specific about many issues. Don't do this. Yes, do this. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Speak like this. Don't speak like that. Act like this. Don't act like that. There are very clear commands, prohibitions in God's word. But there are many facets of life that God's word does not speak explicitly to. And for those areas of life, we still turn to the word of God. The word of God is sufficient for all matters of life and faith, friends. You got that? Affirm or not affirm? Praise the Lord. God's word is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. But when God's word does not speak to an issue directly, we can still turn to God's word and ask principal questions. And that's what the Corinthian grid is. Okay, six questions that help us by way of biblical principle discern, is this right, is this wrong, should I do this, should I not do this? Here's the first question. Will this cause others to stumble? Will this cause others to stumble? It comes from 1 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 8, 8 and 9. Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so a good question to ask yourself is, will this, will my doing this, partaking in this in some way cause others to stumble? If so, let it go. Question number two, will this profit my relationship with Christ? Will it cause others to stumble? And then secondly, will it profit my own relationship with Christ? 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? Helpful, beneficial. Question number three. Can this master me and get me in its control? And maybe a follow-up question to that would be, could I be content without this in my life at all? Can this master me, fill in the blank, and get me in its control? The second half of 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. Question number four. Will this help me or hinder me in reaching others for Christ? Will this help me or hinder me in reaching others for Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul said, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And then Paul says, I do this for the gospel. That's a great reason to do something, by the way. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. The question is, will this, fill in the blank, help me or hinder me in winning others to Christ? Number five, two more to go, we're almost there. Will this glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Raise your hand if you haven't memorized Certainly more than three of you. I know you haven't memorized. I'll start it for you. So whether you eat or drink, now throw your hand up. Praise the Lord. Do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Will this, fill in the blank, help me glorify God? And then the sixth and last question here. Will this tempt me against God's will? Will this tempt me against God's will? Not not will it cause me to violate God's will, but will it tempt me against God's will? If so, let it go. You want some let it go language? Here you go, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee. Flee youthful passions, Paul says. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So where God's word does not speak explicitly to an issue. Drunkenness, it's explicit. Do not get drunk, Paul says, on wine. Now, how about the use, though? Well, here are some good questions, along with good questions to help you in any area where God's word is not explicit, but we can turn to it by way of principle. Will it cause others to stumble? Will it profit my relationship with Christ? Can it master me in any way, shape, or form? Will it help me or hinder me in reaching others for Christ? Will it glorify God? And will it tempt me against God's will? Those are good, I would call it, bumper bowling questions. I don't know about you, I'm not a good bowler. I always appreciate when they blow up those things and stick them in the side of the lane. It keeps my ball in the center of the lane. It may bounce a few times, but it's not going to be a gutter ball. Okay? I'm guaranteed to hit some pins. Maybe I, I think. Those are good bumper questions that will help keep you in the lane of pleasing Christ. Okay? Paul charged the Ephesians that instead of getting drunk on wine, they should instead seek to be filled with the Spirit. Remember, for every put-off, there needs to be a corresponding put-on. Paul says, here's the prohibition. 
don't get drunk on wine. So the question is, Paul, what's the put on? Well, he tells us. He says, be controlled or be filled by the Spirit. That's the God-honoring put on. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Glad you asked. Simply stated, to be filled with the Spirit means to be constantly controlled by the Spirit in our thoughts, in our emotions, in our will, in our actions, and in our words. To be filled with the Spirit simply means to be controlled by the Spirit, to be under the influence, so to speak, of the Spirit, to yield to the Spirit. If the chief responsibility of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Christ, then the Christians being filled with the Spirit is for the purpose of Christ being clearly displayed in their lives. You catch that? The chief aim of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ. Okay? Therefore, the Christians being filled with the Spirit is so that the Christian might bear more resemblance to Christ. Does that help hang some meat on the bones as to what it means to be filled with the Spirit? I'm going to talk here in just a minute about what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean a lot of things. But it simply means to be controlled or to be under the influence in a self-controlled way by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that the wise man should desire to be so filled with God's Spirit that he might bear a faithful and effective testimony. For Jesus Christ. Let me begin here before I go on by, uh, by saying a few words about what this command, which it is a command, by the way. Did you catch that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an imperative in the original language. It's a command. Be filled with the Spirit. Let me say a few things about what this command, to be filled with the Spirit, does not mean. I think the first thing that we need to be clear about here is that being filled with the Spirit is not the same thing as being baptized by the Spirit. That language, being baptized by the Spirit, is in reference to our conversion and new birth. That's, that's what happens the moment that a person becomes a Christian. That's, that's new birth language, baptized by the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer at the moment of their salvation. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he says, The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. If you're here this morning and you know Christ savingly, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He's the deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. If you can remember back to chapter 1. You have him. In all of his fullness, you didn't get some of him and you're waiting for some subsequent secondary filling of him later on in life. You have all of him. God doesn't give anything in half measure. Okay? The moment you came to Christ, the moment that you, that you repented of your sins and turned to Christ, put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, at that moment, signed, sealed, delivered, you were given the Holy Spirit 100% in his full measure. He indwells you. He's the deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He has sealed you, Ephesians 1.13. So being filled with the Spirit is not synonymous with it. It does not mean the same thing as being baptized by the Spirit. Secondly, when Paul speaks about being filled with the Spirit, he's not teaching the necessity for a second work of grace. I mentioned this briefly a moment ago. 
which is oftentimes, uh, if we're talking with uh, one of our charismatic friends, would typically be evidenced by some speaking in tongues or something of the like. That's not what Paul is talking about here, though this text has been used to, uh, to teach that. You won't find that from the context here. That appears nowhere in in Paul's thought process throughout his letter to the church at Ephesus. To be filled with the Spirit is not some mystical experience. It's not some state of, quote, spiritual intoxication where a a Christian operates in some out-of-control manner. Again, the Spirit of God is a spirit of control. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You see, the drunk person calls attention to themselves and makes a fool of themselves, but the spirit-filled Christian calls attention to God and is willing to become a fool for Christ's sake. Well, how then are we to understand Paul's exhortation to be filled with the Spirit? Before we answer that question, I think it's important that we trace back this word fullness. I don't know, actually, I mentioned this months ago. Uh, it's the word pleuroo. Paul uses the word full or fullness or filled. I mean, go back this week. Circle, highlight, underline, star, or if you're not a Bible writer, write it on a notebook. But take note of the instances where Paul uses the word filled, full, fullness. It's one of his favorite words in this letter. He uses it often. Keep your finger there in chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 1 real quick. I want to show it to you, at least a few instances. Chapter 1, verse 23. Paul says, The church, which is Christ's body, shares in the fullness of him who fills all. It's twice in one sentence. The church, Christ's body, it shares in the fullness of Christ who he fills all in all. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 19. Chapter 3, verse 19. Paul's praying here. And this is what Paul prays. He prays that the Ephesians and we subsequently might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. Paul tells us that the ascended Christ is the agent who fills all things. Drop down to verse 13. Paul notes that the ultimate goal of every believer is that we might grow to mature manhood. Being convinced of this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it. That's the goal of every Christian, is that we might grow to mature manhood, which is defined in terms of the fullness of Christ. So what does this mean in light of Paul's exhortation to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we see in these verses, as we see everywhere else in Paul's writing, that Christ is the content. Jesus Christ, this is important, hear me here. Christ is the content with which believers are filled. The Spirit is the agent who mediates that fullness to believers. Does that make sense? Christ is the content. We're to be filled with the fullness of Him, Christ, who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is the content. The Spirit is the one who takes that and applies it to the life of a believer. Okay? So, in other words, the Holy Spirit is the one responsible for transforming believers into the image and likeness of God in Christ. 
Does that make sense? So when we're talking about being filled with the Spirit, it's not some sort of mystical, emotion, out-of-control, charismatic event. It is the simple day-to-day yielding to the control of the Holy Spirit. And that ought to take place the moment that we roll out of bed and our feet touch the floor. God, help me today to be submissive to you. Help me today to yield to your will. Not my will, but yours be done. That's a great prayer to start the morning off with. I've said this before, and I don't know about you, but I can go to bed at night with the warmest of hearts towards the things of God, and something happens between about midnight and 7 o'clock a.m. because I don't typically wake up with a warm heart towards the things of God. I typically wake up selfish, my way. Not your will, but mine. Get out of my way. Don't bother me. Stop being noisy. Where's my call? You know, on and on and on. We're just selfish. And so we need to have that heart rekindled at the word of God. That's why I would encourage you to have a morning quiet time. And I know for some of you, mornings aren't the best. That's, that's fine. We're not a legalist here. Have an evening quiet time. Have, have a lunch time, a lunch break quiet time. But what I've noticed in my life is I have, a, I have a window of opportunity. And if I miss that window of opportunity to spend time with God, it becomes very challenging on the back half of the day to regain the opportunity. Just things begin to happen. The telephone's ringing. The email's rolling. People want to meet. Conversations need to be had. There's tragedy happening. The kids have to be there. I need to be here. Life begins to, to rumble. There's a window of opportunity. Find out what it is for you and set aside time to meet with the Lord, to warm your heart before his word, yielding yourself to the influence of the Holy Spirit, who you already possess in full measure. The Holy Spirit is the one responsible for, we think of being filled, the one responsible for transforming believers into the image and likeness of God in Christ. Remember Paul opened chapter 5 with the exhortation to be imitators of God? Well, the exhortation to be filled with the Spirit, then, is best understood as yielding to the Spirit's control and power and authority in my life, moment by moment, so that I might bear more conformity to Christ. Interpretation, I might be an imitator of God. Make sense? God's Word is so good, so rich, and even oftentimes so simple. John MacArthur gives us a helpful analogy here. He says, The Christian who's filled with the Holy Spirit can be compared to a glove. Until it's filled with a hand, the glove is powerless and useless. It's designed to do work, but it cannot do work on its own. It works only as the hand controls and uses it. The glove's only work is the hand's work. It does not ask the hand to give it an assignment and then try to complete that assignment without the hand nor does it gloat or brag about it which it's used to do. But it knows the hand deserves all the credit. A Christian can accomplish no more without being filled with the Spirit than a glove can accomplish without being filled with a hand. It's a helpful analogy. I think it's important to note that being filled with the Spirit never happens apart from the Word of God. Again, this is why we would encourage you to have a daily quiet time. Matter of fact, Colossians 3.16, which is the, if many of you are familiar with the text, it's the parallel text here. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes on and he says, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
It's the parallel text. Let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly. We must fill ourselves with God's word so that his thoughts will be our thoughts, his standards will be our standards, his work our work, his will our will. You see, and as we yield to the truth of Christ, the Holy Spirit will lead us to say and to do and to be all that God wills that we say and do and be. Simply stated then, to be filled with the Spirit means that we as believers must be moment by moment and day by day yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He already resides there. We're just saying, not my will, but yours be done. Use me as you will. Conform me into the image of Christ that I might be an imitator of God in the dark world that I live in. That I might exercise a life that is characterized by light and not by darkness, wisdom and not by foolishness. Number two on your outline. The spirit-filled Christian then is marked, Paul gives us three evidences here of a spirit-filled Christian. Spirit-filled Christians are marked by expressive adoration. Let me draw your attention to verse 19. Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see, if drunkenness leads to a reckless lifestyle, then the life of a spirit-filled Christian presents us with a much different picture. You see, instead of his mouth being, being under the influence or being under the control of liquid courage, the spirit-filled Christian's mouth is still or is indeed filled with beautiful praise. Instead of being uh, filled with, with li- words of liquid courage, the spirit-filled mouth is instead a beautiful instrument of praise. Notice that Paul gives us a horizontal expression here and a vertical expression. The horizontal, how we're to deal with one another, that's speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then the vertical element here is making melody to the Lord with your heart. The spirit-filled Christian seeks to have edifying conversation with his brothers and sisters, and he makes melody or she makes melody in her heart That's adoration, that's worship that goes up before the Lord and is a pleasing aroma to his nostrils. Notice first that spirit-filled believers address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see, when God takes a man or takes a woman and rescues them from the pit of destruction, when he removes from them their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, he puts a new song in their heart. Psalm 40, verse 3. He puts a new song in their heart. And that new song comes flooding out. You see, Paul's not saying that we all have to have beautiful, wonderful voices. I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, I make a beautiful noise, a beautiful noise at best. I mean, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's simply saying that spirit-filled believers gather together, and when they gather together, they communicate with each other in a very unique way. It's a way that is mutually instructive and edifying. Let me, let me draw your attention back to Ephesians 4.29, that we speak in a way, and I would suggest, based on the text here, Psalms 
uh, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, what Paul is getting at is that we speak Scripture to one another. That, that, we're, that we're building one another up, not, not just with constructive words in general, but with Scripture specifically. Okay? That means we have to have God's Word hidden in our hearts. Because Luke 6.45 says what? Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What Paul is saying here is that when we as believers gather together, that our communication ought to be characterized by mutual instruction and edifying words, that our words would be brimming with God's word. Think about overflowing with God's word, that we would encourage one another, challenge one another, correct one another. And all of this with a new melody that's been put in our hearts. Why? Because he saved me. Just let that sit on your heart and mind for a minute. He saved me. Why? Because I deserved it? Absolutely not. Because I merited it? No way. Because it pleased him to do so. Boy, that'll put a new melody in your, in your words. Because he saved me. Jesus Christ himself will one day sing, and it'll be in our very midst. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 12, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and these are the words of the Son to the Father. Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, think around the throne, the multitude, numbering thousands upon thousands, some from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and Jesus says, and I will sing your praise. You ever considered that? Jesus is going to sing in heaven. He says, I'll sing of your praise, Father. Let me offer a word of practical caution here. Since we're talking about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Christians, be careful of the music that you listen to. Be careful of the music that you listen to. Even, I don't want you to be suspect But have your radar up even when you're listening to what is coming at you that's under the umbrella of contemporary Christian music. The early pagan philosopher Aristotle once wisely observed, he said this, music represents the passions of the soul. And if one listens to the wrong music, he'll become the wrong type of person. Not a believer, but there's wisdom contained in those words. You see, this has much application in the area of secular music as it does with much of what's offered under the label of contemporary Christian music. Certainly not all, but some, and and sometimes it even seems like much of today's contemporary Christian music is laced with trite, repetitive, sentimental, man-centered lyrics. Why? Because it goes down like sugar and it sells. And I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but the next time you turn Christian radio on, take note of how many references to sin you hear. Much of contemporary Christian music is feel-good cliche. Again, I'm not tossing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not making a blanket statement. But just take note the next time that you have Christian radio on. In any given market across the U.S., take note to how many references you hear to sin. 
You see, Paul encourages us to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, with the revealed Word of God. The implanted Word should characterize our worship, and our worship should characterize our conversations. God's Word should characterize our worship, and our worship should characterize our conversations. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul then gives us the vertical element here. He says, making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see, Christ is the object of the Christian's worship. We're not just making melody to anyone. Although, if you listen to a lot of contemporary Christian music, you won't hear the word Jesus. You won't hear the word God. You will in some. You'll hear the word you, 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 you. I mean, it could just as well play on a, on a country station or on a Billboard Top 20. Christ is the object of the Christian's worship. And the melody that a spirit-filled heart makes is beautiful before the Lord, even if our lips can't carry a tune in a bucket, like myself. Paul's simply saying, let your heart rejoice with gladness and overflow with thanksgiving for the one who's made you new. Make it so horizontally and make it overflow vertically. Okay? Spirit-filled Christians are marked with expressive adoration. Number three, we're moving along quickly here. Let me draw your attention to verse 20. Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second evidence that Paul gives us of a person who is full of the Spirit is an overflowing thankfulness. You see, as believers, we are to live with a continual attitude of gratitude. We live in a thankless world. If you want to take me up on this one, the next time you're out to eat, look around, not with a haughty spirit, not not look what I'm doing that this family isn't, but just look around to see who thanks God for their meal. You see, the entitlement mindset is pervasive, and I would submit that we've even bought into it. So it's not just a them out there. This is a prick to the heart of us. We've bought into this entitlement mindset. We think we deserve all that we have, but in all reality, the only thing that we deserve is God's righteous justice for our sin. The very fact that we exist is a result of the Creator's fiat, His pleasure, His will. The fact that God would feed us another day, that he would provide air for us to breathe, a roof over our head, and countless other blessings that we oftentimes take for granted is astounding. What mercy, what grace. That Jesus Christ would come and take on human flesh, that he would die a substitute in our place, the innocent for the guilty, the perfect for the imperfect. And we owe all of that to his loving kindness. Everything that we have, everything that we are, are of his bestowal. Let me bring some practical application here. Even our trials and our frowning providences, if we can call them that, if we are his, come to us as blessings in disguise. Think about thankfulness. It's easy to thank God when times are, are going well. When the going's easy, it's easy to be thankful. But when the wind and the waves of life begin to kick up, That's when we're tempted to be unthankful. And instead we question, why God? Christians, spirit-filled Christians, are to be characterized by a continual attitude of gratitude. There's not to be a spirit of grumbling and complaining. Paul tells us to do everything without grumbling, without complaining. I mean, can... Can we really be thankful in times of suffering, disappointment, and uncertainty, and loss, and you continue to fill in the blank? 
Keep in mind that Paul was writing this letter, the very letter that you have open in your lap. Paul penned these words from prison, encouraging us to have a continual attitude of gratitude, thankfulness in our hearts. I mean, can we say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Can we rejoice even then? Can we be thankful even then? Can we say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields produce no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will still rejoice in God my Savior? Can we still be thankful in those moments? When a Christian finds himself in a difficult situation, he should immediately give thanks to the Father. That may be the most important thing I've said all morning. When you find yourself in a difficult situation or circumstance, the first thing that you ought to do is give thanks. You go back to Romans chapter 1, and the thing that Paul took them to task for there was that that they did not have thankful hearts. And if you look at the result of that unthankful heart, I mean, there's this downward spiral. Their foolish hearts became darkened. They, they exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And it gets even worse than that as you read on down through chapter 1 and chapter 2. Thanklessness grieves the heart of our Father. It's interesting to note that the word gratitude comes from the same root word as grace. Anytime you see an evidence of God's grace in your life, It ought to result in gratitude in your heart and in your mouth. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. You see the mixed yarn of life, the good and the bad, woven in the loom of heaven by the Father of mercies, traces back its perfect design for all in Christ. Number four, we'll be super brief here. The Spirit-filled Christian is marked by mutual submission. The third evidence that Paul sees in a person who's full of the Spirit is that we are mutually submissive to each other. Now, scholars and Bible translators and Bible teachers are divided on how verse 21 fits into the context here. Some, uh, some translators and teachers will take 21 and they, they bring it into the text that I brought it in here, 18 through 21. And some uh, Bibles and scholars and translators will take verse 21, and that'll be the beginning of the, the husband-wife being a picture of Christ in the church. Um, syntactically, I think it goes here, and the reason I say that is because uh, verses 18 through 21 are one long sentence in the original Greek. So I think uh, grammatically and syntactically, verse 21 goes with the text that we're looking at here. But I will say this, there's, there, uh, verse 21 finds further expression in the verses that follow in husbands and wives and how they are to relate and the submissiveness to a wife, uh, to her husband as the husband is to be, to be submissive to Christ. The word submit here, it's an interesting word. You might think it means obey, but that's, that's not the sense of the word here. Rather, it means that we as Christians, out of a desire to please and honor Christ, should walk with each other with a lowliness of mind. Simply means humility. There's one way, and I think I've probably mentioned this multiple times, that we as Christians can biblically outdo one another. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. There's one way that we can biblically, in an honoring to God way, one-up each other. And that way is we can outdo one another in showing honor. What that looks like practically is not me but you. 
And then you turn around and say, not me, but you. Why? For the glory of Christ. It's I lay down my will, my, my wants, my desires, my preferences, and you lay down your will, your wants, and your desires, and your preferences. And what, what typically reigns when individuals lay down their will, their wants, their preferences, and their desires is the will, wants, desires of Christ. That typically reigns. That's what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is essentially saying here is that our self-seeking must be replaced by a nobler affection. And that is the noble affection of self-denial. That I would deny myself and give preference to you. And you would deny yourself and give preference to others. And that that would characterize our relationships within the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus' disciples began to argue at one point over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus said, guys, 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 you've missed it. The greatest will be your what? Your servant. Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later in Philippians, and we'll end here, Paul said this. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humilities consent." Can, Count others as more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. And you ask the question, well, why? Why do those things? Well, Paul wraps it up and he tells us, out of reverence for Christ. Why do we do anything that we do? Out of reverence for Christ. When I wake up and go to work tomorrow morning, I don't do so working for men. I do so as one working for the Lord. That's just another way of saying, out of reverence for Christ. Why do we do everything that we do? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. To be filled with the Spirit means to be controlled by the Spirit. And then the three evidences are expressive adoration, overflowing thankfulness, and mutual submission. Are we the end product? We're not. Are we growing? We should be. Is that you? 